Chapter 15 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 15 Divines. I am now to push my statistical survey into regions where precise inquiries seldom penetrate and are not very generally welcomed. There is, commonly, so much vagueness of expression on the part of religious writers that I am unable to determine what they really mean when they speak of topics that directly bear on my present inquiry. I cannot guess how far their expressions are intended to be understood metaphorically, or in some other way to be clothed with a different meaning to what is imposed by the grammatical rules and plain meaning of language. The expressions to which I refer are those which assert the fertility of marriages and the establishment of families to be largely dependent upon godliness. I may even take a much wider range and include those other expressions which assert that material well-being generally is influenced by the same cause. I do not propose to occupy myself with criticising the interpretation of these or similar passages, or by endeavouring to show how they may be made to accord with fact. It is the business of theologians to do these things. What is simply to investigate whether or no the assertions they contain, according to their prima facie interpretation, are or are not in accordance with statistical deductions. If an exceptional providence protects the families of godly men, it is the fact that we must take into account natural gifts would then have to be conceived as due, in a high and probably measurable degree, to ancestral piety, and, in a much lower degree than I might otherwise have been inclined to suppose, to ancestral natural peculiarities. All of us are familiar with another and exactly opposite opinion. It is popularly said that the children of religious parents frequently turn out badly, and numerous instances are quoted to support this assertion. If a wider induction and a careful analysis should prove the correctness of this view, it might appear to strongly oppose the theory of hereditary. On both these accounts, it is absolutely necessary to the just treatment of my subject to inquire into the history of religious people and learn the extent of their hereditary peculiarities and whether or no their lives are attended by an exceptionally good fortune. I have taken considerable pains to procure a suitable selection of divines for my inquiries. The Roman Catholic Church is rich in ecclesiastical biography, but affords no data for my statistics, for the obvious reason that its holy personages of both sexes are celibates, and therefore incapable of founding families. A collection of the bishops of our church would also be unsuitable because during many generations they were principally remarkable as administrators, scholars, polemical writers, or courtiers, whence it would not be right to conclude, from the fact of their having been elevated to the bench, that they were men of extraordinary piety. I thought of many other selections of divines, which further consideration compelled me to abandon. At length I was fortunately directed to one that proved perfectly appropriate to my wants. Middleton's Biographica Evangelica, four volumes, eight fold, 1786, is exactly the kind of work that suits my inquiries. The biographies contained in it are not too numerous, for there are only 190s together, extending from the Reformation to the date of publication. Speaking more precisely, the collection includes the lives of 196 evangelical worthies, taken from the whole of Europe, who, with the exception of the first four, namely Wycliffe, Huss, Jerome of Prague, and John of Wessalia, died between 1527 and 1785. This leaves 192 men during a period of 258 years, or three men in every four, a sufficiently rigorous but not too rigorous selection for my purposes. The biographies are written in excellent English, with well-weighed epithets, 
and though the collection is to some extent a compilation of other men's writings it may justly be viewed as an integral work in which a proportionate prominence has been given to the lives of the more important men and not as a combination of separate memoirs written without reference to one another Middleton assures the reader in his preface that no bigoted partiality to sex will be found in his collection that his whole attention has been paid to truly great and rigorous characters of all those persuasions which hold the distinguishing principle of the gospel he does not define what in his opinion those principles are but it is easy to see that his leaning is strongly towards the calvinists and he utterly reprobates the papists i should further say that after reading his work i have gained a much greater respect for the body of divines than i had before one is so frequently scandalized by the pettiness acrimony and fanaticism shown in theological disputes that an inclination to these failings may reasonably be suspected in men of large religious profession but i can assure my readers that middleton's biographies appear to the best of my judgment to refer in by the far greater part to exceedingly noble characters there are certainly a few personages of very doubtful reputation especially in the earlier part of the work which covers the turbid period of the reformation such as cranmer saintly in his professions unscrupulous in his dealings zealous for nothing bold in speculation a coward and a time-server in action a placable enemy and a lukewarm friend Macaulay. nevertheless i am sure that middleton's collection on the whole is eminently fair and trustworthy the one hundred ninety-six subjects of middleton's biographies may be classified as follow twenty-two of them were martyrs mostly by fire the latest of these homel a pastor in the cavanese in the time of lewis the fourteenth was executed sixteen eighty three under circumstances of such singular atrocity that although they have nothing to do with my subject i cannot forbear quoting what middleton says about them Hommel was sentenced to the wheel, where every limb, member, and bone of his body was broken with the iron bar forty hours before the executioner was permitted to strike him upon the breast with a stroke which they call le coup de grace, the blow of mercy, the death stroke which put an end to all his miseries. Others of the 196 worthies, including many of the martyrs, were active leaders in the Reformation, as Wycliffe, Zwingluis, Luther, Ridley, Calvin. Beza. Others were most eminent administrators, as Archbishops Parker, Grindle, and Usher. A few were thoroughgoing Puritans, as Bishop Potter, Knox, Welsh, the two Erskines, and Dr. J. Edwards. A larger number were men of an extreme but more pleasing form of piety, as Bunyan, Baxter, Watts, and George Herbert. The rest, and the majority of the whole list, may be described as pious scholars as a general rule the men in middleton's collection had a considerable intellectual capacity and natural eagerness for study both of which qualities were commonly manifest in boyhood most of them wrote voluminously and were continually engaged in pre-services they had evidently a strong need of utterance they were generally but by no means universally of religious parentage judging by the last one hundred biographies of middleton's collection the earlier part of the work giving two imperfect notices of their ancestry to make it of use to analyze it it would appear that out of one hundred men only forty-one had one or more eminently religious parents nothing whatever being said of the parentage of the other fifty-nine the forty-one cases are divided thus in seventeen cases a the father was a minister in sixteen cases b the father not being a minister both parents were religious in five cases, C, 
the mother only is mentioned as pious. In two cases D, the mother's near relatives are known to have been religious. In one case E, the father alone is mentioned as pious. There is no case in which either or both parents are distinctly described as having been sinful, though there are two cases, F, of meanness, and one, G, of overspending. The condition of life of the parents is mentioned in 66 cases, more than one-third of the whole. They fall into the following groups. 4. Highly connected. Hamilton, George, Prince of Anhalt, John Alasco, Herbert. 8. Ancient families. Not necessarily wealthy. Joel, Deering, Gilpin, Hildersham, Ames, Bedell, Lewis, De Dieu, Palmer. 15. Well-connected. Oaclompadius, Zwinglius, Capito, Farrell, Jones, Bergenhagus, Bullinger, Sandys, Featley, Dodd, Fulk, Poole, Baxter, Griffith, Jones, Davies. 23. Professional. Melanchthon and Topledy. Officers in Army, Gaetaker, Usher, and Sorin. Legal. 17 were ministers. See list already given. Devenant, Merchant. 6. In Trade. 2. Abbots. Weaver, Tweese, Clothier, Bunyan, Tinker, Watts, Boarding School, Doddridge, Oilman. Poor, Huss, Ball, Garnus, Fagius, Latimer. 6. Very Poor, Luther, Pelican, Musculus, Cox, Andreas, Prideale. There is, therefore, nothing anomalous in the parentage of the divines. It is what we should expect to have found among secular scholars born within the same periods of our history. The divines are not founders of influential families. Poverty was not always the reason of this, because we read of many whose means were considerable. W. Gouge left a fair fortune to T. Gouge, wherewith he supported Welsh and other charities. Evans had considerable wealth, which he wholly lost by speculations in the South Sea bubble, and others are mentioned who were highly connected and therefore more or less well off. The only families that produced men of importance are those of Sorin, whose descendant was the famous Attorney General of Ireland, of Archbishop Sandys, whose descendant, after several generations, became the first Lord Sandys, and of Hooker, who was an ancestor of the eminent botanists, the late and present directors of the Kew Botanical Gardens. The Divines as a whole have had hardly any appreciable influence in founding the governing families of England or in producing other judges, statesmen, commanders, men of literature and science, poets or artists. The divines are but moderately prolific. Judging from the latter biographies, about one half of them were married, and there were about five or possibly six children to each marriage. That is to say, the number actually recorded gives at the rate of 4.5, but in addition to these occurs, about once in six or seven cases, the phrase, many children. The insertion of these occasional unknown but certainly large numbers would swell the average by a trifling amount. Again, it is sometimes not clear whether the number of children who survived infancy may not be stated by mistake as the number of births, and owing to this doubt we must further increase the estimated average. Now, in order that population should not decrease, each set of four adults, two males and two females, must leave at least four children who live to be adults behind them. In the case of the divines, we have seen that only one half are married men. Therefore, each married divine must leave four adults to succeed him. 
if his race is not to decrease. This implies an average family of more than six children, or as a matter of fact, larger families than the divines appear to have had. Those who marry often marry more than once. We hear in all of 81 married men, three of these, namely Junius, Gattaker, and Flavel, had each of them four wives. Booser and Mather had three, and twelve others had two wives each. The frequency with which the divines became widowers is a remarkable fact, especially as they did not usually marry when young. I account for the early deaths of their wives, on the hypothesis that their constitutions were weak, and my reasons for thinking so are twofold. First, a large proportion of them died in childbirth, for seven such deaths are mentioned, and there is no reason to suppose that all, or nearly all, that occurred have been recorded by Middleton. Secondly, it appears that the wives of the divines were usually women of great pity. Now it will be shown, a little further on, that there is a frequent correlation between an unusually devout disposition and a weak constitution. The divines seem to have been very happy in their domestic life. I know a few exceptions to this rule. The wife of T. Cooper was unfaithful, and that of Paul Hooker was a termagant. Yet, in many cases, these simple-hearted worthies had made their proposals under advice, and not through love. Calvin married on Booser's advice, and as for Bishop Hall, he may tell his own story, for it is a typical one. After he had built his house, he says in his autobiography, The uncouth solitariness of my life and the extreme incommodity of my single housekeeping drew my thoughts after two years to condescend to the necessity of a married estate, which God no less strangely provided for me. For walking from the church on Monday in the White Sun Week with a grave and reverend minister, Mr. Grandage, I saw a comely and modest gentlewoman standing at the door of that house, where we were invited to a wedding dinner, and inquiring of that worthy friend whether he knew her. Yes, quoth he, I know her well, and have bespoken her for your wife. When I further demanded an account of that answer, he told me she was the daughter of a gentleman whom he much respected, Mr. George Winniff of Brendenham, that out of an opinion had of the fitness of that match for me. He had already treated with her father about it, whom he found very apt to entertain it, advising me not to neglect the opportunity, and not concealing the just praises of the modesty, pity, good disposition, and other virtues that were lodged in that seemly presence. I listened to the motion as sent from God and at last drew upon prosecution, happily prevailed, enjoying the company of that meet help for the space of forty-nine years. The mortality of the divines follows closely the same order in those who are mentioned in the earlier, as in the latter volumes of Middleton's collection. Although the conditions of life must have arrived in the periods to which they refer, out of the 196, nearly half of them die between the ages of fifty-five and seventy-five, one quarter die before fifty-five, and one quarter after seventy-five. 62 or 63 is the average age at death, in the sense that as many die before that age as after it. This is rather less than I have deduced from the other groups of eminent men treated of in this volume. Dodd, the most aged of all the divines, lived till he was 98. Nommel and Dumoulin died between 90 and 95. Sankius, Beza and Conant between 85 and 90. The diseases that killed them are chiefly those due to a sedentary life, for if we exclude the matires, one quarter of all the recorded cases were from the stone or strangury, between which diseases the doctors did not then satisfactorily discriminate. Indeed, they murdered Bishop Wilkins by mistaking the one for the other. 
There are five cases of plague, and the rest consist of the following groups in pretty equal proportions, viz. Fever and ague, lung disease, brain attacks, and unclassed diseases. As regards health, the constitutions of most of the divines were remarkably bad. It is, I find, very common among scholars to have been infirm in youth, whence partially from inaptitude to join in with other boys in their amusements, and partially from unhealthy inactivity of the brain, they take eagerly to bookish pursuits. Speaking broadly, there are three eventualities to these young students. They die young, or they strengthen as they grow, retaining their tastes and enabled to indulge them with sustained energy, or they live on in a sickly way. The divines are largely recruited from the sickly portion of these adults. There is an air of invalidism about most religious biographies that also seems to me to pervade to some degree the lives in Middleton's collection. He especially notices the following 14 or 15 cases of weak constitution. 1. Melanchthon, lower D, 63, whose health required continual management. 2. Calvin, lower D, 55, faint, thin, and consumptive, but who nevertheless got through an immense amount of work, perhaps we may say. 3. Junius, lower D, 47, a most infirm and sickly child, never expected to reach manhood, but he strengthened as he grew, and though he died young, it was a plague that killed him. He moreover survived four wives. 4. Down, lower D, 61, a Somersetshire vicar who, through all his life, in health and strength, was a professional pilgrim and sojourner in the world. 5. George Herbert, lower D, 42, consumptive and subject of frequent fevers and other infirmities, seems to have owned the bent of his mind very much to his ill health, for he grew more pious as he became more stricken, and we can trace that courageous, chivalric character in him which developed itself in a more robust way in his ancestors and brothers who were mostly gallant soldiers. One brother was a sailor of reputation, another carried twenty-four wounds on his person. 6. Bishop Potter, lower D, 64, was of a weak constitution, melancholic, lean, and peritonical. 7. Janeway, lower D, 24, found hard study and work by far an overmatch for him. 8. Baxter, lower D, 76. Was always in wretched health. He was tormented with a stone in the kidney, which, by the way, is said to have been preserved in the College of Surgeons. 9. Philip Henry, lower D. 65. Called the Heavenly Henry when a young clergyman was a weakly child. He grew stronger as an adult, but ruined his improved health by the sedentary ways of a student's life, alternating with excitement in the pulpit, where he sweated profusely as he prayed fervently. He died of apoplexy. 10. Harvey, lower D, 30, was such a weakly, puny object that his father did not like his becoming a minister, lest his stature should render him despicable. 11. Moth, lower D, unknown age, seems another instance. Hardly any personal anecdote is given of him, except that God was pleased to try him many ways, which phrase I interpret to include ill health. 12. Brennard, lower D. 29. Was naturally infirm and died of a complication of obstinate disorders. 13. Hervey, lower D. 55. 
though an early riser was very weakly by nature he was terribly emaciated before his death fourteen guise lower d eighty one a great age for those times was nevertheless sickly he was hectic and overworked in early life afterwards ill and lame and lastly blind fifteen top lady lower d thirty eight struggled in vain for health and a longer life by changing his residence at the sacrifice of his hopes of fortune in addition to these fifteen cases of constitutions stated to have been naturally weak we should count at least twelve of those that broke down under the strain of work even when the labour that ruined their health was unreasonably severe the zeal which goaded them to work beyond their strength may be considered as being in some degree the symptom of a faulty constitution each case ought to be considered on its own merits they are as follows one would take her lower d forty eight laid the seeds of death by his incredible application two rollock lower d forty three the first principal of the university of edinburgh died in consequence of overwork though an actual case of his death was the stone three dr reynolds lower d forty eight called the treasury of all learning human and divine deliberately followed his instinct for overwork to the very grave saying that he would not prosper vitamin vivendi perdere causas lose the ends of living for the sake of life four stock lower d unknown age spent himself like a taper consuming himself for the good of others five preston lower d forty one sacrificed his life to excessive zeal he is quoted as an example of the saying that men of great parts have no moderation he died an old man at the age of forty one six herbert palmer lower d forty six after a short illness for having spent much of his natural strength in the service of god there was less work for sickness to do seven bailey lower d fifty four who was so holy and conscientious that if he had been at any time but innocently pleasant in the company of his friends it cost him afterwards some sad reflections preserve me for the privilege of such companions lost his health early in life eight clark lower d sixty two was too laborious and had in consequence a fever at forty three which extremely weakened his constitution nine ulrich lower d Forty-eight, had an ill habit of body contracted by a sedentary life and an overstraining of his voice in preaching. Ten, Isaac Watts, lower d. Seventy-four, a proficient child but not strong, fell very ill at twenty-four and again at thirty-eight, and from this he never recovered, but passed the rest of his life in congenial seclusion, an inmate of the house of Sir T. Abney, afterwards of his widow. Eleven. Davies, lower d, thirty-seven, a sprightly boy and keen rider, grew into a religious man of so sedentary a disposition that after he was made president of Yale College in America, he took hardly any exercise. He was there killed by a simple cold, followed by some imprudence in sermon writing, his vital powers being too low to support any physical strain. Twelve, T. Jones, lower d, thirty-two. Before the Lord was pleased to call him, he was walking in the error of his ways. Then he was afflicted with a disorder that kept him very low and brought him to death's door, during all which time his growth in grace was great and remarkable. This concludes my list of those divines, 26 in number, who were specially noted by Middleton as invalids. 
it will be seen that about one half of them were infirm from the first and that the other half became broken down early in life it must not be supposed that the remainder of the 196 were invariably healthy men these biographies dwell little on personal characteristics and therefore their silence on the matter of health must not be interpreted as necessarily meaning that the health was good on the contrary as i said before there is an air of the sick room running through the collection but to a mere less degree than in religious biographies that i have elsewhere read a gently complaining and fatigued spirit is that which evangelical divines are very apt to pass their days it is curious how large a part of religious biographies is commonly given up to the occurrences of the sick room we can easily understand why considerable space should be devoted to such matters because it is on the deathbed that the beliefs surely tested but this is insufficient to account for all we find in Middleton and elsewhere. There is, I think, an actual pleasure shown by evangelical writers in dwelling on occurrences that disgust most people. Rivet, a French divine, has strangulation of the intestines which kills him after twelve days' suffering. The remedies attempted, each successive pang and each corresponding religious ejaculation is recorded, and so the history of his bowel attack is protracted through forty-five pages which is as much space as is allotted to the entire biographies of four average divines mead's death and its cause is described with equal minuteness and with still more repulsive details but in a less diffuse form i have thus far shown that twenty-six divines out of the one hundred ninety-six or one-eighth part of them were certainly invalids and i have laid much stress on the hypothesis that silence about health does not mean healthiness however i can add other reasons to corroborate my very strong impression that the divines are on the whole an ailing body of men i can show that the number of persons mentioned as robust are disproportionately few and i would claim a comparison between the numbers of the notably weak and the notably strong rather than one between the notably weak and the rest of the one hundred ninety six in professions where men are obliged to speak much in public the constitutional vigour of those who succeed is commonly extraordinary it would be impossible to read a collection of lives of eminent orators lawyers and the like without being impressed with the largeness of the number of those who have constitutions of iron but this is not at all the case with the divines for middleton speaks of only twelve or perhaps thirteen men who were remarkable for their vigour two very instructive facts appear in connection with these vigorous divines we find on the one hand that of the twelve or thirteen who were decidedly robust five if not six were irregular and wild in their youth and on the other hand that only three or four divines are stated to have been irregular in their youth who were not also men of notably robust constitutions we are therefore compelled to conclude that robustness of constitution is antagonistic in a very marked degree to an extremely pious disposition first as to those who have been vigorous in constitution and wild in youth they are five or six in number. One, Beza, lower D, 86, was a robust man of very strong constitution, and what is very unusual among hard students, never felt the headache. He yielded as a youth to the allurements of pleasure, and wrote poems of a very licentious character. Two, Welch, lower D, 53, was of strong robust constitution and underwent a great deal of fatigue. In youth he was a border thief. 3. Rothwell, lower D, 64, 
was handsome, well set, of great strength of body and activity. He hunted, bowled, and shot. He also poached a little. Though he was a clergyman, he did not reform till late, and still the devil assaulted him, much and long. He got on particularly well with his parishioners in a wild part of the north of England. 4. Grimshaw, lower D. 55. Was only once sick for the space of sixteen years, though he used his body with less consideration than a merciful man would use his beast. He was educated religiously, but broke loose at eighteen, at Cambridge, at the age of twenty-six, being then a swearing drunken parson, he was partially converted, and at thirty-four, his preaching began to be profitable. Then it followed twenty-one years of eminent usefulness. 5. Whitefield, lower D. 56. Had extraordinary activity, constantly preaching and constantly travelling. He had great constitutional powers, though from disease he grew corpulent after forty he was extremely irregular in early youth, drinking and pilfering. Stephen, Ecclesial Biographies. 6. It is probable that Tros ought to be added to this list. He will again be spoken of in the next category but one. Next, as to those who were vigorous in constitution but not irregular in youth, they are seven in number. 1. Peter Mater, lower D, 62. A large, healthy man of grave, sedate, and well-composed countenance. His parts and learning were very uncommon. 2. Mead, lower D. 52. Was a fine, handsome, dignified man. Middleton remarks that his vitals were strong, and he did not mind the cold, and that he had a sound mind in a sound body. He was a sceptic when a student at college, but not wild. 3. Bedell, lower D. 72. A tall, graceful, dignified man, a favourite even with Italian papists, suffered no decay of his natural powers till near his death. 4. Leighton, lower D. 70. Of a sudden attack of pleurisy, he looked so fresh up to that time that age seemed to stand still with him. 5. Burkett, lower D. 53. Of a malignant fever, but his strength was such that he might have been expected to live till 80. He was turned to religion when a boy by an attack of smallpox. 6. Alex, lower D, 76. Had an uncommon share of health and spirits. He was a singularly amiable, capable and popular man. 7. Harrison D, unknown age. A strong, robust man, full of flesh and blood, humble, devout and of bright natural parts. This concludes a list. I've been surprised to find none of the type of Cromwell's Ironsides. Lastly, as to those who are irregular in youth, but who are not mentioned as being vigorous in constitution, they are three or four in number, according to Trous, is omitted or included. 1. William Perkins, lower D, 43, a cheerful, pleasant man, was wild and a spendthrift at Cambridge, and not converted till 24. 2. Bunyan, vicious in youth, was converted in a wild, irregular way, and had many backslidings throughout his career. 3. Trous, lower D, 82. His biography is deficient in particulars about which one would like to be informed, but his long life followed a bad beginning, appears to be a sign of an unusually strong constitution, and to qualify him for insertion in my first category. 
He was sent to France to learn the language, and he learned also every kind of French rascality. The same process was repeated in Portugal. The steps by which his character became remarkably changed are not recorded. Neither are his personal characteristics. 4. T. Jones, lower D, 32, has already been included among the invalids, having been wild in youth but rendered pious by serious and lingering ill health. I now come to the relationships of the divines, recollecting that there are only 196 of them altogether, that they are selected from the whole of Protestant Europe at the average rate of 22 men in three years, the following results are quite as remarkable as those met with in the other groups. 17 out of the 196 are interrelated. Thus, Simon Gyrinos is uncle of Thomas, who is father of John James, and there are others of note in this remarkable family of peasant origin. Whitetager's maternal uncle was Dr. Nowell. Robert Abbott, Bishop of Salisbury, is brother to Archbishop Abbott. Down's maternal uncle was Bishop Joel. Dodd's grandson, daughter's son, was Bishop Wilkins. William Gouge was father of Thomas Gouge. Philip Henry was father to Matthew Henry. Ebenezer Erskine was brother to Ralph Erskine. There are eight others who have remarkable relationships, mostly with religious people, namely Knox's grandson, the son of a daughter who married John Welch, and Josiah Welch, the cock of the conscience. F. Junius had a son, also called Francis, a learned Oxonian, by his daughter who married J. G. Vossius. He had for grandchildren Dionysius and Isaac Vossius, famous for their learning. John was descended through his mother from Lord Chancellor Sir John Moore and Judge Restall. Herbert was brother to Lord Herbert of Cherbury, and had other eminent and interesting relationships. Usher's connections are most remarkable for his father, father's brother, mother's father, mother's brother and his own brother were all very eminent men in their day. The mother's brother of Louis de Dieu was a professor of Leyden. The father and grandfather of Mather were eminent ministers. The father and three brothers of Sorin were remarkably eloquent. It cannot be doubted from these facts that religious gifts are, on the whole, hereditary, but there are curious exceptions to the rule. Middleton's work must not be considered as free from omissions of these exceptional cases. Neither he nor any other biographer would conceive it to be his duty to write about a class of facts which are important for us to obtain, namely, the cases in which the sons of religious parents turned out badly. I have only lighted on a single instance of this apparent perversion of the laws of hereditary in the whole of Middleton's work, namely that of Archbishop Matthew. But it is often said that such cases are not uncommon. I rely mostly for my belief in their existence upon social experiences of modern date, which could not be published without giving pain to innocent individuals. Those of which I know with certainty are not numerous, but are sufficient to convince me of there being a real foundation for the popular notion. The notoriety of some recent cases will, I trust, satisfy the reader and absolve me from entering any further into details. The summary of the results concerning the divines, to which I have thus far arrived, is that they are not founders of families who have exercised a notable influence on our history, whether that influence be derived from the abilities, wealth, or social position of any of their members, that they are a moderately prolific race, rather under than above the average, that their average age at death is a trifle less than that of the eminent men comprised in my other groups, that they commonly suffer from overwork that they have usually 
wretched constitutions, that those whose constitutions were vigorous were mostly wild in their youth, and conversely, that most of those who had been wild in their youth, and did not become pious till later in life, were men of vigorous constitutions, that a pious disposition is decidedly hereditary, that there are also frequent cases of sons of pious parents who turned out very badly, but I shall have something to say on what appears to me to be the reason for this. I therefore see no reason to believe that the divines are an exceptionally favoured race in any respect, but rather that they are less fortunate than other men. I now annex my usual tables. Table 1 is displayed on the page. Summary of relationships of 33 of the divines of Middleton's Biographica Evangelica grouped into 25 families. Table 2 is also displayed with degrees of kinship. A comparison of the relative influences of the male and female lines of descent is made in the following table. In the second degree, 1 upper G plus 3 upper U plus 0 upper N plus 0 upper P equals 4 kinships through males. 4 lower G plus 7 lower U plus 1 lower N plus 4 lower P equals 16 kinships through females. In the third degree, 0 upper G upper F plus 0 upper G upper B plus 2 upper U upper S plus 0 upper N upper S plus 0 upper P upper S kinships through males. 1 lower G upper F plus 1 lower G upper B plus 0 lower U upper S plus 0 lower N upper S plus 0 lower P upper S equals 2 kinships through females. This table shows that the influence of the female line has an unusually large effect in qualifying a man to become eminent in the religious world. The only other group in which the influence of the female line is even comparable in its magnitude is that of scientific men, and I believe the reasons laid down when speaking of them will apply, mutatis mutandis, to the divines. It requires unusual qualifications, and some of them of a feminine caste to become a leading theologian. A man must not only have appropriate abilities and zeal and power of work, but the postulates of the creed that he professes must be so firmly ingrained into his mind as to be the equivalence of axioms. The diversities of creeds held by earnest, good and conscientious men show to a candid looker-on that there can be no certainty as to any point on which many of such men think differently, but a divine must not accept this view. He must be convinced of the absolute security of the groundwork of his peculiar faith. A blind conviction which can best be obtained through maternal teachings in the years of childhood. I will now endeavour to account for the fact which I am compelled to acknowledge that the children of very religious parents occasionally turn out extremely badly. It is a fact that has all the appearance of being a serious violation of the law of hereditary and as such has caused me more hesitation and difficulty than I have felt about any other part of my inquiry. However, I am perfectly satisfied that this apparent anomaly is entirely explained by what I am about to lay before the reader, premising that it obliges me to enter into a more free and thorough analysis of the religious character than would otherwise have been suitable to these pages. The disposition that qualifies a man to attain a place in a collection like that of the Biographica Evangelica, can best be studied by comparing it with one that, while it contrasts with it in essentials, closely resembles it in all the unimportant respects. Thus we may exclude from our comparison all except those 
whose average moral dispositions are elevated some grades above those of men generally, and we may also exclude all except such as think very earnestly, reverently, and conscientiously upon religious matters. The remainder range in their views, and, for the most part, in the natural disposition that inclines them to adopt those views, from the extremist piety to the extremist scepticism. The Biographica Evangelica affords many instances that approach to the former ideal, and we may easily select from history men who have approached to the latter. In order to contrast and so understand the nature of the differences between the two ideal extremes, we must lay aside for a while our own religious predilections, whatever they may be, and place ourselves resolutely on a point equidistant from both, whence we can survey them alternately and with equal eye. Let us then begin, clearly understanding that we are supposing both the sceptic and the religious man may be equally earnest, virtuous, temperate, and affectionate, both perfectly convinced of the truth of their respective tenets, and both finding moral content in such conclusions as those tenets imply. The religious man affirms that he is conscious of an indwelling spirit of grace that consoles, guides, and dictates, and that he could not stand if it were taken away from him. It renders easy the trials of his life, and calms the dread that would otherwise be occasioned by the prospect of death. He gives directions and inspires motives, and it speaks through the voice of the conscience, as an oracle, upon what is right and what is wrong. He will add that the presence of this spirit of grace is a matter that no argument or theory is capable of explaining away, inasmuch as the conviction of its presence is fundamental. In his nature, and the signs of its action are as unmistakable as those of any other actions made known to us through the medium of the senses. The religious man would further dwell on the moral doctrine of the form of creed that he professes, but this we must eliminate from the discussion, because the moral doctrines of the different forms of creed are exceedingly diverse, some tending to self-culture and asceticism, and others to active benevolence but we are seeking to find the nature of a religious disposition so far as it is common to all creeds. The sceptic takes a position antagonistic to that which I have described, as appertaining to the religious man. He acknowledges the sense of an indwelling spirit, which possibly he may assert to have himself experienced in its full intensity, but he denies its objectivity. He argues that, as it is everywhere acknowledged to be a fit question for the intellect to decide whether other convictions, however fundamental, are really true, or whether the evidences of the senses are in every given case to be depended upon, so it is perfectly legitimate to submit religious convictions to a similar analysis. He will say that a floating speck in the vision and a ringing in the ears are capable of being discriminated by the intellect from the effects of external influences, that in lands where mirage is common, the experienced traveller has to decide on the truth of the appearance of water, by the circumstances of each particular case, and as to fundamental convictions, he will add that it is well known the intellect can successfully grapple with them, for Kant and his followers have shown reasons to which all metaphysicians ascribe weight, that time and space are, neither of them, objective realities but only forms which under our minds, by virtue of our own constitution, are compelled to act. The sceptic, therefore, claiming to bring the question of the objective existence of the spirit of grace under intellectual examination, has decided whether rightly or not has nothing to do with our inquiries. 
that it is subjective, not objective. He argues that it is not self-consistent in its action inasmuch as it prompts different people in different ways, and the same person in different ways at different times, that there is no sharp demarcation between the promptings that are validly natural and those that are considered supernatural. Lastly, that convictions of right and wrong are misleading inasmuch as a person who indulges in them without check from the reason becomes a blind partisan, and partisans on hostile sides fill them in equal strength. As to the sense of consolation derived from the creature of a fond imagination, he will point to the experiences of the nursery, where the girl tells all its griefs to its doll, converses with it, takes counsel with it, and consoles by it, putting unconsciously her own words into the mouth of the doll. For these and similar reasons, which it is only necessary for me to state and not to weigh, the thoroughgoing ideal sceptic deliberately crushes those very sentiments and convictions which the religious man prizes above all things. He pronounces them to be idols created by the imagination, and therefore to be equally abhorred with idols made by the hands of grosser material. Thus far, we have only pointed out an intellectual difference, a matter of no direct service in itself, in solving the question on which we are engaged, but of the utmost importance when the sceptic and religious man are supposed to rest contentedly in their separate conclusions, in order that a man may be contented sceptic of the most extreme type. He must have confidence in himself that he is qualified to stand absolutely alone in the presence of the severest trials of life, and of the terrors of impending death. His nature must have sufficient self-assertion and stoicism to make him believe that he can act the whole of his part upon earth without assistance. This is the ideal form of the most extreme scepticism, to which some few may nearly approach, but it is questionable if any have ever reached. On the other hand, the support of a stronger arm and of a consoling voice are absolute necessities to a man who has a religious disposition. He is conscious of an incongruity in his nature and of an instability in his disposition, and he knows his insufficiency to help himself. But all humanity is more or less subject to these feelings, especially in sickness, in youth, and in old age, and women are more affected by them than men. The most vigorous are conscious of secret weaknesses and failings, which give them, often in direct proportion to their intellectual stoicism, agonies of self-distrust. But in the extreme and ideal form which we are supposing, the incongruity and instability would be extreme. He would not be fit to be a free man for he could not exist without a confessor and a master. Here, then, is a broad distinction between the natural dispositions of the two classes of men. The man of religious constitution considers the contented sceptic to be foolhardy and sure to fail miserably. The sceptic considers the man of an extremely pious disposition to be slavish and inclined to superstition. It is sometimes said that a conviction of sin is a characteristic of a religious disposition. I think, however, the strong sense of sinfulness in a Christian to be partially due to the doctrines of his intellectual creed. The sceptic, equally with the religious man, would feel disgust and shame at his miserable weakness in having done yesterday, in the heat of some impulse, things which today, in his calm moments, he disapproves. He is sensible that if another person had done the same thing, he would have shunned him. So he similarly shuns the contemplation of his own self. He feels he has done that which makes him unworthy of the society of pure-minded men, that he is a distinguished pariah, who would deserve to be driven out with indignation. 
if his recent acts and real character were suddenly disclosed. The Christian feels all this and something more. He feels he has committed his faults in the full sight of a pure God, that he acts ungratefully and cruelly to a being full of love and compassion, who died as a sacrifice for sins like those he has just committed. The considerations add extreme poignancy to the sense of sin, but it must be recollected that they depend upon no difference of character. If the skeptic held the same intellectual creed, he would feel them in precisely the same way as a religious man. It is not necessarily dullness of heart that keeps him back. It is also sometimes believed that Puritanic ways are associated with strong religious professions, but a Puritan tendency is by no means an essential part of a religious disposition. The Puritan's character is joyless and morose. He is most happy, or to speak less paradoxically, most at peace with himself when sad. It is a mental condition correlated with the well-known Puritan features, black straight hair, hallowed cheeks, and sallow complexion. A bright blue-eyed rosy-cheeked curly-heeled youth would seem an anomaly in a puritanical assembly. But there are many divines mentioned in Middleton whose character was most sunny and joyful, and whose society was dearly prized, showing distinctly the puritan type is a speciality, and by no means an inviolable ingredient in the constitution of men who are naturally inclined to pity. The result of all these considerations is to show that the chief peculiarity in the moral nature of the pious man is his conscious instability. He is liable to extremes, now swinging forwards into regions of enthusiasm, adoration and self-sacrifice, now backwards into the sensuality and selfishness. Very devout people are apt to style themselves the most miserable of sinners, and I think they may be taken to a considerable extent at their word. It would appear that their dispositions is to sin more frequently and to repeat more fervently than those whose constitutions are stoical and therefore of a more symmetrical and orderly character. The amplitude of the moral oscillations of religious men is greater than that of others whose average moral position is the same. The table, page 34, of the distribution of natural gifts is necessarily as true of morals as of intellect or of muscle. If we class a vast number of men into fourteen classes, separated by equal grades of morality as regards our natural disposition, the number of men per million in the different classes will be as stated in the table. I have no doubt that many of Middleton's divines belong to class upper G, in respect to their active benevolence, unselfishness, and other amiable qualities. But men of the lowest grades of morals may also have pious amplitudes, thus among prisoners the best attendants on religious worship are often the worst criminals. I do not, however, think it is always an act of conscious hypocrisy in bad men when they make pious professions, but rather that they are deeply conscious of the instability of their characters, and that they fly to devotion as a resource and consolation. These views will, I think, explain the apparent anomaly why the children of extremely pious parents occasionally turn out very badly. The parents are naturally gifted with high moral characters combined with instability of disposition, but these peculiarities are in no way correlated. It must therefore often happen that the child will inherit the one and not the other. If this heritage consists of the moral gifts without great instability, he will not feel the need of extreme pity. If he inherits great instability without morality, he will be very likely to disgrace his name. End of chapter 15